This is Mass and Volume, a podcast exploring topics on cultural identity and social dynamics. I am your host, Scotty Crow. Thank you so much for listening. Here's today's episode. Hey, this is Scotty Crow with Mass and Volume, and today I have the distinct pleasure of sitting across from Dr. Joycelyn Wilson. Dr. Joyce, how are you? I'm doing great, thank you. Thank you for being here. So I first came across you because of the course that you taught last semester at Georgia Tech. I see that you're repping white and gold today, oh, a little I bit. Am. I got I like my yellow on. I appreciate it, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but the course was called Exploring the Lyrics of Outcast and Trap Music to Explore Politics of Social Justice. And in that course title um, are like four or five of the most fascinating things that that I come across um, or I've come across in my life. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was really drawn to you and, and to learn about your work. And so, like I said, it's a it's a pleasure to be here and, and to talk with you. Thank you so much. It was a it was a lot of work to get this on the schedule, but we got it worked out. I, right? I know, I am, and I appreciate your patience with it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just wondering because, and maybe things have changed since I was there, but like I was like we were talking about before we started recording, it's just such a different type of offering than anything that was available when I was there. And I was in the humanities school, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious, um, was there any, were there any challenges in terms of bringing that type of material and that type of course to, to the school? Or was it really like welcomed with open arms and seeing like, oh, this is a void that we haven't, that we need to fill, that we haven't really ever touched on before? It was welcomed with open arms Mm. that I came in as a fellow um, at at DLAC. DLAC is um, the baby of the dean of Jacqueline Royster. I'm not sure if she was there when you were there, but um, Dean Royster, uh, she is basically the founder of Digital Integrative Liberal Arts Center, DILAC. And I came as a fellow this year. And one of my roles was to teach a class but to also, I have a digital archive, a digital hip hop archive. We'll talk more about it. It's called Virtual 4-4. And the whole goal was for me to really up the ante on the technology with the archive to make it um, accessible through VR. And so pairing that with the class was part of why I was brought to Georgia Tech in the first place. So thank God I didn't have to jump through any hoops or any type of bureaucratic issues or anything like that. Um, the class was full. There was a wait list. Mm-hmm. Stu- it was on Fridays from one to four. Students showed up. Right. You know, um, they were awesome, and it was really a pilot to see is there a space for this here. Mm-hmm. We're in Atlanta. We're right in the center of Atlanta. Um, Georgia Tech should be on the cusp of those conversations around Atlanta history and social justice and contemporary hip-hop and entertainment and all those different things especially in the humanities so it was it was an easy sell to say the least yeah. and the, the the institute has been extremely supportive of the class that's great I'm curious um, what the what the sort of foundational level mm-hmm. of of the music that that you were going to cover and reference in the class was by the people who enrolled like did sure. everyone was everyone uh, a hip-hop head um, did no. you have anybody, so were there like prerequisites, like, like listen to these albums or these artists no, coming in? No, not at all. So on the first day, that was one of my questions. I wanted to know my audience, like, who are you guys? I mean, these are undergraduates. They are 17 years old. At the least they're 17, right? So they were born in 2000. Right. So 
They don't know about Southern Playalistic. They right. don't even know about Illmatic. They don't even know about Enter 36 Chambers Wu-Tang Clan. They don't know a catalog of music because they weren't even born yet. Right. So part of me getting to know them was getting to know why they signed up for the course in the first place. And you know, what's their hip hop literacy? And it ranged. Um, there were students who had no literacy in hip hop. I mean, they listened to rap music, but they didn't know much about it. Um, there were students who, whose parents introduced them to Southern Playalistic because they listened to it. Mm. So it was a wide range and it didn't matter because it was a pilot. And so what it allowed me to see were the holes. So in the fall, I'll be offering a history of hip hop culture class because we didn't get a chance to spend a whole lot of time on history. And so we'll fill that, fill those gaps in in the fall and then hopefully in the spring, I'll offer the course again, and maybe some of the students who signed up for the history of hip hop class will be right. in the in the outcast class. And right. I think that will even make for a more rich experience. Wow, I love that. Thank you. It's really exciting. <laughs> so just taking a look at your bio, you are an ethnographer and a qualitative researcher mm -hmm. of the hip hop generation, and um, studying the practices and traditions of cultures and communities. And then it says, doing so from the perspective of an African-American woman from the South, who was raised after the civil rights movement and during the formative years of hip hop culture, mm -hmm. and um, that really hit me because uh, because of that last piece. And you know, this show is about cultural identity, and that's such a that's such a foundational element, it seems, of the work you do. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about when you became aware mm -hmm. of of those separate pieces in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, I know that it's it's influenced your path in some obvious ways, mm -hmm. but if you have some non-obvious ways that that sort of steered you, I'd love for you to share those as well. Yeah, so um, I have a lot of different identities around hip hop. Of course, we most of us enter the space as fans and consumers of the music, right? And so I'm the same way I was introduced to it through a cousin, you know, who um, was sort of privileged in, in, in a way where his his mother could afford to get him the technology of the time. So he was able to get the music and he shared the music with me. Mm -hmm. And so I shout out to my cousin, Ted. He's also a Georgia Tech graduate. Yeah, Ted. <laughs> um, do you remember what, that, what, what he first shared with you? Um, I believe I was, so I was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama and my family migrated along with other African-American Alabamians in the, in the mid to late seventies. Um, my family was the last to come, and so he was already here. And so he would share with me, when I first heard Rapper's Delight, it was through him. Mm. You know, when I first heard the Beastie Boys, it was through him. And then he's also a DJ, he was a DJ. So he would share some of his tapes with me. So I was kind of like a protege, and he's an artist. So I would just watch him from the mixing to the songs that he, that he played to the graffiti that he wrote. I think that was pretty much the beginning and for so long I was just, I was really an ethnographer before I was an ethnographer. When I reflect back on my journey with the culture, I've been collecting it for a very long time. And when you ask the question about the obvious ways and non-obvious ways, I didn't realize it until I was writing my dissertation that I could put language around what I had been doing and didn't even know that I was doing. Right. And so I've been doing ethnographic research, you know, 
long before I had the language. And my teachers at Mays had been practicing hip hop pedagogy long before it became this academic buzzword. It was just good teaching. Mm-hmm. So they incorporated it into the class. So there were so many different forces. It was perfect timing from when we moved to Atlanta to where we moved when I got to Atlanta. We didn't move to Decatur or Latonia. We moved right in Southwest Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in right in the thick of Atlanta public schools, um, right off the heels of the Atlanta child murders, right during the election of Andrew Young, attending schools, all black schools. I didn't know what that was like, you know, until I got here, being in all black neighborhoods, being in an all black school, seeing black excellence at the level that I had, that I was seeing it right when hip hop was taken off. It was just the perfect storm. Right. So those are some of the non-obvious ways. And I think it was the setup for when I started teaching, I realized, hmm, well, maybe I could do some of the same things that my teachers were doing with me. And that introduced me to, okay, if I get a PhD, I wanna be able to study the relationship between hip hop, teaching and learning. Because I was seeing my students come to school very much influenced by the culture but they were from, you know, Manhattan Beach is a very, I wouldn't say it's segregated. I think it's siloed. Mm-hmm. It's very siloed. Mm-hmm. So that reflected in my classroom. So I had rich students, poor students, um, Latino students, deaf students, all in their own little spaces, black students. And here I am, 23 years old, trying to get them to all come together. At the time, I was writing for a magazine called Rap Pages. And one day it just kind of clicked that there was something common between what I was doing in the classroom and what I was doing outside of the classroom. And Mm -hmm. I wanted to study what it was. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. There's so much in there. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. I I, I think that the piece that you shared about realizing after you have lived through these things Mm -hmm. that they have shaped you in in a very specific way. So that's how you get that bio, that last piece. Right, right. Really just being intentional. Like my identity as a black woman from the South is the nucleus of all these other things happening. Mm -hmm. That's That's a powerful piece. And I think it's a powerful idea overall for kind of all of us to take stock and like what are these factors, whether they're environmental or family or... Um, the way we see in the world or culture that we've been exposed to that really shaped our, our values, mm-hmm. right? The other thing I wanted to mention is in terms of the ethnography. I, I noticed that you often refer to elements of hip-hop as artifacts, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's a really powerful idea too because I think that hip-hop is often re- reduced to um, commercialism in, in some ways and because it's a, a new genre of music, mm-hmm. it's not seen as having the sort of value or resonance mm-hmm. that older genres might might have. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that you are sort of digging through these artifacts and then finding how they're very important in the social landscape mm-hmm. is, um, I, th- I think that's, that's really exciting for, for the music itself and everybody who's involved in it and who appreciates it. Mm-hmm. Um, this might actually be a good time to share a little bit about the, the project that you mentioned as well. The yeah. 4-4? It's called Virtual 4-4. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Virtual 4-4 started off as a physical archive of vinyl records that were put on loan to me by a DJ named Michael Webster, who is my cousin Ted's best friend. Mm. So when I started doing this work, I realized that it was Mike feeding Ted and Ted feeding me. 
And so once I moved to Atlanta, I met Mike. And Mike became like this big brother in the same way that my cousin is. And a few years ago, he got out of DJing. Um, he also was part of this very um, privileged experience as a post-civil rights youth. His mom was a judge for the city of Atlanta. And so his house became like this afternoon place, learning environment to engage in hip hop and DJ for all the guys in the neighborhood. So that room became really significant. And that room sat and it's still sitting um, and it had vinyl records about probably about 8,000 pieces of vinyl just sitting down there. Wow. And his dad was like, Mike, you need to come get this stuff, man. You got to come get this stuff. <laughs> you know, there's mold and mildew in the room. I need you to come get these records. And so for about two years, I just kept pitching him, let me get your records. Let me get your records. There's this trend around preserving hip hop in colleges and universities. And uh, this was on the heels of me completing the Hip Hop Archive Fellowship at Harvard. And I said, let me get your records. And so I got a grant, a seed grant from Virginia Tech to acquire his records. Uh, we did, we established a physical archive at uh, Virginia Tech. It was called the Vir Virtual 4-4 and it was born out of a, some work that I did at Morehouse called the Hip Hop 2020 Curriculum Project. And the goal was to make this physical archive available digitally because there's a certain level of educational privilege to even getting to these archives. Yeah. So my question always remained, how do students who grew up like I did, are gonna, how are they going to get access to these records in the way that I did? Mm. And the way that they're going to be able to get access to them, we have to digitize the collection and we have to make this a virtual archive, not just a physical. It has to li the lab has to live online. There's a beta version that's online now at virtual44.org where you can see me kind of talking you through a video tour. Um, and in October, we will put the VR version and the uh, game version online, which I'm really, really excited about because we are sitting at the, I mean, we are really at the, at the edge of innovation when it comes to bringing together culture, music, technology, and social justice learning in a really cool way. And so I'm really excited about that. That's, yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. That's really, <laughs> and what a project too. Yeah, it's, it's been, now this is my life's work mm -hmm. and to see it come together uh, when it was just living in my head for so long, to see it now finally coming together and the right people getting on board um, makes it really, really special and humbling. Sort of jumping from the idea of like uh, like archiving to like present day, like contemporary hip hop. Um, I'm wondering through, through a, a social justice or social justice commentary lens, um, who right now do you think is the most underrated artist or group in hip-hop for what their contributions are to the sort of overall commentary? Mm. Underrated? Sure. Or maybe not like not seen as being sort of um, conscious in that way. Future. Huh. Kirkwood. People don't study future. Right. Um, I think a lot of times critics assume that future is just mumble 
drug Percocet Molly rap rather than looking at him delivering the same level of commentary differently. Mm-hmm. So for example, the song March Madness, um, there's a lot of uh, survivor's guilt in that song. I mean, you hear him talking about how he's been able to live this really flashy lifestyle, um, even in the midst of police brutality. Um, And then he even gets really boastful and he says, the police can't touch me, you know? Um, So he recognizes his position and he recognizes his identity as an African-American male. But then, you know, he talks about getting out. So, I think that future where he may not have an entire song, but what he does is he, I think that he codes his lyrics in a way that sometimes people might miss. And I think that happened with Mask Off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why Kendrick Lamar got on the remix. So perhaps people can listen even just a little bit more. To elevate it and try to make it more accessible mm-hmm. to people who might not see future in that way. Yeah, I think uh-huh. that he's probably one of the most... I wouldn't say underrated. I think that he's the most, um, what's the adjective? I think that he is probably the most misunderstood. Hmm. You have to remember also, Future is a product of organized noise. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. Right. You know, um, and I can't remember, it was in the early 2000s when I was writing for XXL. I wrote, um, they have a column that's still in there. It's very popular. It's called Show Improve. And, you know, as a, as a new artist, you want to get a Show Improve. And I wrote the show improved for a group called a connect. And if you look, if you look at it, there's a picture in there of Rico with his arms around these four guys. Well, to his left is this artist named meathead and that's future. And so he's very much a product of the organized noise dungeon family legacy. Yeah. And people remove him from that. Mm-hmm. But when you add that to his existence as an artist, then we're able to see him quite differently and ask other questions of his music. Mm. First of all, I just want you to let you know that like the BPM of my heart is so high right now. It's like a hummingbird because like these are the exact like I sort of want to go like through everybody's catalog with you and have you break down the lyrics. Like as soon as you said future, I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I was like so excited. <laughs> Um, Thank you. Yeah, and I think I read a profile about Future not too long ago because um, I, I remember that he grew up in Kirkwood and he has some, uh, he's connected in some way to Andre. <laughs> and so he's part of Dungeon Family Organized Noise, like that lineage. But that there's something about. He's connected to Rico. Connected to Rico. Rico Wade. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay, mm-hmm. that was what it was. Um, but then I something about how he wasn't getting studio time or there was some sort of like thing where he wasn't getting the attention or, or shine that he thought that he wanted and so he stepped away a little bit and kind of you know did his own thing because he needed to but obviously like he reinvented his, himself right because yeah. he was meathead and right. connect and now he's future right and how many people have to do that that's the kevin durant story right mm-hmm. you step away reinvent yourself create a new team so that you can win the ring mm-hmm. and that's what two chains did yep 100 percent. you know and out of that, we get this new music. It's the cycle, I think, of of just black cultural expression. And it's, it's great. Right. You know, um, I enjoy it. Yeah, Kanye said March Madness should have won a Grammy, right? That's That song, have you ever seen the live performance on Saturday Night Live? Yes. 
Yeah, so that song is a very important, musically, it's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's something very sentimental about it, but it's also something very haunting about it. And then when you look at the lyrics, you just you can you can see just how he's conflicted with his success, but also seeing people that he's left behind mm. in the midst of police brutality. No one really looks at the song that way right. because Future has been stereotyped as the mumble rapper, mm -hmm. the one who talks about Molly and doing drugs. I mean, and while that's in his music, I mean, it's also in other forms of music and other genres of music. So that's that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just makes it what it is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What my students realized is they so one of the very first books they have to read is blues music. I mean blues blues people, by Leroy Jones, and that's one of the most that's a seminal book on Black cultural expression because it establishes the music in relation to white America during um, the transatlantic slave trade. It does not remove blues music and slave work songs and spiritual songs. It doesn't remove it from the context through which it was created. So what students finally learn once they leave that class is trap music as it is now in its popular sense has always existed. Wow. Trap music is just a new metaphor to explain blues music. Mm -hmm. It's just a contemporary way to explain the same music that's been developing since that time. Wow, wow, blues music, Leroy Jones. Yes, definitely Great. get that. Uh, yeah, I, and I'll, I'll link it in the show notes for sure. Yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I remember when we, when the course first started, I read the comments. You know, mm. I want to see what people were saying. Right. And I read this one comment where somebody was like, outcast and trap music shouldn't even be using the same sentence. And I'm like, uh, somebody doesn't know their history. Yep. <laughs> 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 yeah. 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 Which is also a typical stance of somebody who's making a comment. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the flip of that question, mm -hmm. uh, who's an artist that you feel, an artist or group you feel is overrated? in terms of the contributions that they're making to social impact commentary. Oh, wow, overrated. I've never gotten asked that question. Mm. So who's overrated? I don't know if there's anybody that's being overrated. Okay. Um, I don't know anybody that's been, I think everybody, I like Chance the Rapper. I think what he's, mm -hmm. I like what he's doing with his um, his art. There's an, there's an artist named Trey 80 the Future, Travion Alexander. Okay. Um, he has a project out called Soul Music that's on SoundCloud. I like what he's doing. Okay, uh, he just—he's from St. Louis, just moved to Atlanta, and is getting himself situated here. And I think that we'll see more out of him. Uh, but overrated—I don't know of anybody that's overrated. Okay. Great. People try, try to think that Lil Yachty is overrated, but I don't think Lil Yachty is mm -hmm. overrated. I think Lil Yachty is 19, and the product of creative privilege. Mm -hmm. And I use that word a lot. I use privilege a lot in my talking and in my commentary because I think it's important for us to begin to look at privilege in different ways beyond just racial privilege. You mm -hmm. have this educational privilege. Mm -hmm. You've got creative privilege. And Yachty is a product of a father and a grandfather who are both photojournalists. Mm. So I think a lot of people try to say he's overrated, but he's not. Right. So part of that question is inspired mm -hmm. by, actually, hold on, T to talk about Yachty for a minute, my, my circle of friends don't appreciate this take, but 
I strongly feel that there are times that Yachty sounds like a young Andre 3000. Mm. Like like the way he uses his voice, right? And like if you think about um, Aquimini and like how Andre was starting to mess around with like vocal pitch and auto tune <laughs> and those kinds of things and how weird that was for hip hop and even go if, there's like an oral history of Aquimini that came out and how like big boy and people are like don't like the way you sang on synthesizer like don't do that anymore because mm-hmm. people don't like it but obviously you know it became like a defining part of, yeah. of his and their sound well i agree with you on that mm-hmm. totally agree with you on that that's one of andre 3000's main contributions to hip-hop who i mean he was the first one singing on the whole album yeah that's we got singing rappers i mean we had ja rule but ja rule not really you right. know but when andre did the love below mm-hmm that's how you get 808s and heartbreaks right you know that's how you get these artists singing strictly out of that's an andre 3000 production yeah yeah (laughs) so i do agree with you on that one (laughs) absolutely going back to the overrated idea um i think that there sometimes seems to me that they're and not to say they can't coexist and maybe you'll put me in my place here but um that I feel like in terms of, this is sort of a, tied to another question too, is I've never really loved this idea of conscious hip hop because I think that there's like a consciousness overall that exists. Yes, but, I agree with you. But there have been waves of like like periods in the genre where there have been like sort of um, like subgroups who have broken out and really like only applied their artistry to speaking out about social issues, right? Mm-hmm. So that seems to exist maybe now in more like, um, Everybody's kind of touching on it, but Mm -hmm. nobody's like fully dedicating themselves Mm -hmm. to it. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. And I think that two guys that I think get a lot of credit for speaking out on issues are Kendrick and J. Cole. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's often offset with um, like uh, language that could be interpreted as like misogynist Mm -hmm. or insensitive. Mm -hmm. And um, it's not to say that like like the music is not polar, like no one's messaging is polar, right? Um, but that sometimes those things feel in conflict with each other, right? And so um, I guess I just love to get any of your input on on that idea. Like can those, how do those things coexist? Mm-hmm. And how are those both like honest representations of, of culture or storytelling? Sure, so they're honest representations in the sense that we see that J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, and the men who speak out of against social justice issues are just that, they're men. Mm-hmm. And they are afforded the rights and privileges of being men, um, which I think oftentimes has to get checked by themselves. Mm. That's the work that they have to do. And my hope is J. Cole, Kendrick, or whomever, any guy that is committed to social justice issues also see women as a part of that you know, as a part of what it's gonna take in order for us to reach the ideal of social justice. Mm-hmm. And part of the work that men have to do, just like part of the work that um, people who are not of color have to do is their own self-work around their own privilege of being men and or and men in white, you know, or of another color. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's the important part. And I would like to, I think that's the next part that rappers have to begin to do is check their own misogyny, even when they are socially conscious, Mm -hmm. you know, because you can be 
I mean, you can be just as committed to issues of race and equity. You can be just as committed to educational opportunity for all. But at the end of the day, you're still human and you have to check yourself on some of those things because it can come off as being not necessarily you come off as a misogynist, but it just comes off as sexist. Yeah. You know, and J. Cole does say some sexist things sometimes. I don't think he does it on purpose. I think he does it because he's a man, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. kind of just a part of his makeup. It's, it's sort of going back to the first thing we talked about in terms of like not realizing that you're being shaped and living through something yeah. until you take stock in it <laughs> exactly. afterwards. Exactly. Right. And so they have to do that work. Right. That's part of their growth is like, you know what? I have to be gay. I have to start checking my sexism. Mm-hmm. Most, I, I say that to my guy friends and um, even with my students, you know, like, you have to check your sexism because mm-hmm. it's there. Mm-hmm. And if you don't check it, it will check you. Yeah. And you'll find yourself being a part of the movement, but you'll be so part of the movement, you'll be like the sexist social activist. Right. And who wants that? No, no, no one. <laughs> Dr. Joyce in here is speaking truth. Wow. Yes. Who wants a sexist social activist? Right. No. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that is the truth. I, um, I had a dear friend of mine a couple of years ago ask me, I would like, I would send her like playlists or, or tapes and stuff. And, and she would say, Hey, so, um, just like curious, like, how are you cool with like listening to all this music and then also trying to be a voice on mm. this other stuff? Right. Yeah. And I was like, Hmm. And I felt ways about that cause I love my music. Right. Yeah. And I was like, I thought about it a long time and I was like, Oh, I feel like it's, it's sort of like, this is a language of of, of love that's being used that is outside of my culture. Mm-hmm. And so I, it's, it's an element of storytelling, right? And that's, that's what I told her and I was like really articulated well and I felt good about it. And then um, I read um, uh, Chimamanda's Adichie's new mm-hmm, book. Mm-hmm. And I remember the next day I was walking to work listening to some music and there was some language in there that it's the first time in my life that it hit me and I was yeah. like, Oh, there's like a level of hypocrisy for me to like embrace this music in a way and also like want to embrace everything that I read last night. Yeah. Right. Like those two things have a difficult time coexisting yeah. on the same plane. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. And so I think that, like you said, that's maybe a moment of me checking myself and also realizing that I kind of like fabricated this reason to my friend, mm. you know? So I, went, I had to go back to her and be like, hey, actually, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's the self work. Yeah, for sure. Sure. Know, and I think a lot of folk don't want to do the self work, right? But right. that's the self work that yeah. you did, and so you had your aha moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, one of many. <laughs> yeah, hopefully one of. One more big question for you, and then I've sure. just got a, a couple that I ask everybody at the end of the show, um, and I would just love to hear, uh, and and maybe like one or two specific terms if you can. But what do you think is the potential of impact that hip hop can have on social justice or civil rights? Mm-hmm. Um, especially like with everything that's happening right now, like all the noise and, and all the issues that feel like they're happening in our country. What, what, can, what can music and hip hop do or, and how might it be able to do that? Educational equity. Hmm. I think, um, so there are two fundamental elements of hip hop. And I wouldn't even say elements, I would say these two are the foundations of hip hop and that's pedagogy, the idea of teaching and learning, the art of teaching and learning and technology. Hip hop has always manipulated technology. It has always taken something and turned it into something. On the flip side, 
when you enter into a hip hop space, the idea is to learn something good, bad, or indifferent. And so I believe the power of hip hop can change our schools, it could change our classrooms, it could change the ways in which we teach and we learn, the ways that we manipulate technology. Like we were saying at the early, uh, early of the show, when you were at Georgia Tech, you didn't have access to a course like this. So now that students have access to a course like this around the humanities and digging into artifacts and lyrics that show them what the issues are. If you're a public policy major, then you might think differently about gentrification now that you've been exposed to, say, Spodioti Dopalicious. Mm -hmm. You know, you might begin to think about police brutality much differently after you've listened to March Madness. So the idea is to use these artifacts to raise the civic engagement capacity, social justice literacies of of people who can do something. And I think that happens in educational and learning environments. Mm. So it's not a coincidence that Chance the Rapper wants to take over some schools in Chicago because that's where the work is gonna get done. That's where the opportunity is gonna get done. And it's not by happenstance that you have a group of scholars, including myself, who are committed to the ways in which you can use hip hop and these cultural artifacts, or even just hip hop inspired, just black music or just music in general. I mean, you can use Nirvana in a classroom, mm -hmm. you know, to um, raise these capacities and expose children to their future. So when you ask the question of what is the biggest impact hip hop can have, the biggest hip, the biggest impact hip hop has had and will continue to have is going to take place in learning environments, mm. colleges, right. universities, public schools, private schools. Right, I love that, and then it becomes something that that creates a legacy, mm -hmm. right? So like, mm -hmm. yeah, learning creates learning creates learning, and so and then it raises the it, it raises the creative morale of teachers again. Mm. Teachers are burnt out. Schools of education are um, have low enrollment. Uh, no one wants to go into one of the most respected fields anymore, and that's teaching, learning, the you know, going into being a professor and, and, and engaging in those types of activities. There's like, why should we do that? All we have to do is all we we are doing teaching to the test. When you bring arts based instruction back into the classroom, it not only raises the morale of the students but it gets the teacher engaged. And so that's the, I think hip hop is the, the, the thing that can do that mm. for both teachers and students mm. on all levels. Right, there are so many of, things that ha that of these things that exist that we know about and probably a you know, hundred times that, that exist that we don't know about. But I remember the, um, the teacher who changed the lyrics to Bad and Bougie to talk about the Civil War, right? Th you, th there's some sort of viral that video that went around. Was this at Ron Clark Academy or? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, no, Ron Clark Academy does everything. I mean, it's amazing. Um, I think it was a teacher somewhere else. Oh, cool. I, I didn't yeah. know about that. But that's I great. So. Those mm -hmm. are the types of things that, you know, did you see Migos doing Llama Llama yeah, Red Pajama? Of course. Yeah, I sent it to all my friends. You know? <laughs> I've read that book to their, their kids. I know. I know. So I end the podcast by asking all my guests the same two questions. Mm -hmm. And they're. They're big, broad, general questions, but I just like to hear what people respond. And the first one is, uh, what is it to you that matters the most? Mm. Self-love, mm. knowledge of self, knowing who you are, 
Um, and I could get religious and spiritual and biblical about it, but there's no need to do that because um, hip hop is based in true authentic expression. And I think it has allowed people to be their true authentic selves. So for me, it's self-love and learning about who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the most important thing to me. Wow. And the other question is, uh, what is one thing that you think everyone should do each day? Pray. Pray. Meditate. Be grateful. And then start your day. I love it. <laughs> is that how you start? That's how you start your yeah. day? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Do you have like a way that that looks or a best practice for it? Or... You know, no, um, I just lay there and I mm. just say thank you, mm. you know, and that's it. I say thank you and I just kind of go from there, whatever happens after that. Then I grab my phone and I might post on Instagram, mm-hmm. good morning and kind of go, but it all begins with me waking up and saying thank you. I love that. Mm-hmm. I, I heard this interview where they were talking about how, um, expressing gratitude in a measurable way yeah. in an external way hmm. um, is actually positive for our health and our demeanor and how we get rest and how we can receive information and um, they encourage people to do much of what you're saying which is like buffer your day at the beginning and the end by um, expressing gratitude or thanks in mm-hmm. some way or um, kind of like you touched on the privilege piece a little bit too but like like how how has this day been easy for me because of the wind behind my back for some sure. reason right sure, sure. Um, and so as much as I can, I, I try to make sure that it's like a, a daily practice that I have as well. It helps you get through the crazy too. For sure. You know, I think I'm not a huge DJ Khaled fan, mm-hmm. but I am a huge DJ Khaled fan because I believe things are happening so well in his life because he's always positive. Mm. He has been shouting, we the best for as long as I've been introduced to him. Yep. And every time he's on Snapchat or somewhere, somehow, he's always projecting positivity. Hmm. You want to be around people like that, you yeah. know? And it's not that he is the best at, the best DJ in the world, but he is a good person. Mm-hmm. And it seems like he puts out positivity. And so I think that we could all learn something from Khaled because he's always smiling. He always seems really happy and he's always screaming, we the best. (laughs) So just be the best. Dr. Joyce, (laughs) Dr. Joyce with gems. Like we have to end now, but I don't want to (laughs) end. I literally just want to go through every artist and be like, tell me about this person. (laughs) Tell me about their music. We Um, will continue these conversations. I love it. I love it. Um, Great. Because you're going to be moving back to Atlanta. Oh, hey. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Might have to. <laughs> yeah, I, and actually a lot of the things we talked about today, I think in terms of um, education and Atlanta culture and um, Atlanta's position in civil rights and, and social justice, like all those things I feel, like I, we were saying beforehand, keep drawing me closer and closer and closer here. So, well, thank you so, so, so much for the mm-hmm. time. Thank um, you. I'll link uh, your website and social networks and that way if people want to get in touch with you they can but um thank you again this has been a real treat this is great thank you i'm glad we were able to get it together me too thanks chris (laughs) thanks chris
Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of Mass and Volume. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, we are at Mass and Volume. Our website is massandvolume.me. And on the website, each audio file is paired with a companion essay. And in that essay, we also list any links or references that the guest or myself may have made in our chat today. If you're listening to us on iTunes, thank you very much. If not, you can subscribe. And if you happen to like what you hear, we would love for you to rate and or review us there. Thank you so very much, and we will see you soon. Hear you soon. You'll hear us soon. I hope you hear us soon. Okay, I'm done. Bye. There's like a, a school tour for everybody's coming in and we were assigned stations and we had to like come up with a like a, a two-minute pitch of like what this thing on campus was so everybody could enjoy and my group was assigned to the library it's the most exciting place and um i decided that i would change the lyrics to welcome to atlanta to welcome to the library so so i had actually forgotten them but one of my very very dear friends Shout out to Jay. Um, she remembers like all of them. And so I had her email them to me this oh, morning. So cool. I'm just going to read them to you really quickly yeah, if that's okay. That's great. Um, so it goes, uh, welcome to the library where the players play and read them books like every day. Big books, big dictionaries and stuff that's boring. And we don't stop until eight in the morning. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a little bit more. Hold on.